All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marta Wilson, and we have another debate for you, another fantastic show. I am so happy to be before you to bring you another great debate. I have Jacob Hansen and Andrew Harrison with me, and they're going to be debating Jesus and the Father. Are they the same substance? Is Jesus the same su substance as the Father? And I am excited for them to be here. I am, an I am excited for you also to be with us as well. But before I bring the guys in, I do want to make sure that you know to subscribe to The Gospel Truth. Hit that notification bell so you don't miss out on anything The Gospel Truth has coming up here in the future. You don't miss out on any interviews, debates, or commentary. So make sure you subscribe to The Gospel Truth. Uh, as many of you already know, The Gospel Truth is not only on YouTube, but different aspects of the content, different aspects of the ministry are also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So if you don't mind, make sure you flow over there if you are if you have those platforms under your you know, sign-in or whatever, uh, make sure you follow over there and follow the God's Truth as well on those platforms as well. Also, all this content will be on podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Well, not will be, but are, but is on those platforms as far as uh, podcasts are concerned. So if you just want to listen to the audio, maybe you're making a long road trip and you want a good debate to listen to, why not follow the God's Truth and have all of that at your, at your leisure, right? Uh, as always, Always, I do have a bunch of shows that are coming up here in the future on the Gospel Truth that I want you guys to be aware of. After this debate, I have a great debate coming up. I have Michael Jones of Inspired Philosophy and Tyler Vila of the Free Thinker Podcast is going to be joining me, and they're going to be discussing divine hiddenness. Uh, if you follow Tyler uh, for any lengthy amount of time, significant amount of time, you know that Tyler used to be a Christian, and now he's just a theist. Uh, general term theist and no longer holding to the Christian worldview. So this will be a fun discussion uh, and I look forward to it and hopefully you are as well. After that, I have Dakota Sorensen and Jeremiah Nortier, and they're going to be jumping on. We're going to have a great debate on baptismal regeneration. Uh, both of these guys have been on the gospel truth before, and so I am looking forward to having a fantastic debate with these guys as well. After that, I have a Turretin fan and uh, Kurt Jarris. Dr. Kurt Jarris is going to be joining me, and they're going to be talking about provisionism. Is it semi-Pelagianism. Uh, this is going to be a fun fun discussion. This is the first time topic on the gospel truth, so I'm glad I'm able to host it. And both of these guys have been on before, so I'm looking forward to it. After this, I have Michael Faber and Michael Borowski that's going to be joining me. God, does God predestine all things? So this is going to be a fun topic as well. Always fun to have these fun topics like this. These are a bit of controversial topics as well. So I'm looking forward to Michael Faber and Michael Borowski to be jumping on the gospel truth to uh, have that debate. And lastly, many of you know I've been repetitive with this is that we are having a fundraiser on the gospel truth. We're trying to raise funds for media equipment. Uh, a lot of times when the gospel truth goes on the road, we have to rely on the venue and hope that they have high quality equipment to do in-person debates, things like that. But we want to mute all that. We want to be able to say, nope, it doesn't matter what venue we're doing it in. We have our own high quality equipment to do the interviews, to do the debate. So I'm asking you as a viewer, as a supporter, if God has put on your heart to support the ministry in this capacity, all you have to do is flow into the description of this video, this live stream, and you can see the link, the fundraiser link there and make sure you click on that and that will take you to the fundraiser page. And if you can give any gift of any amount, it would be appreciated to go towards media equipment, right? That said, 
I'm going to bring these guys in so we can get this debate going. Once again, we are going to be discussing is the father, is Jesus and the father the same substance? And so let me bring these guys in so they can further introduce themselves to you guys. How you guys doing, fellas? Doing well, Marlon. Thanks for having us. Glad, glad to have you. Glad to have you. Appreciate you both for joining us. Andrew, you ain't going to say hi, man. You go just say, you ain't going to say hi. Yeah, I think you're muted, man. That's why we didn't hear you say hi. I'm muted. Man. I I'm you... sorry. <laughs> I said hello, hello, hello. <laughs> no, you're good, man. You're good. Man. I have to make sure you be, you're joining in on the highs, man. Say hi to the audience. But good, good stuff, guys. Of course. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are joining me, man. I was looking forward to this one. This is always a fun topic. Very serious topic as well. This is a center line to many of the, in the Christian faith, man. This is a center line topic, man. And some people can find some real hard, rigid positions on this. So this is going to be a fun discussion. But before we jump into the debate, I'm going to allow you guys to introduce yourselves to the audience. Uh, tell them what you do, blogs, YouTube channels, ministry, whatever it is that you do. Let them know so they can come check you out. All right. Jacob, if you don't mind, go ahead and give a quick introduction yourself yeah uh, so my name is jacob hansen i run a youtube channel called thoughtful faith um you can just google or youtube thoughtful faith i also moderate a facebook forum called thoughtful saints where we essentially talk about uh issues related to latter-day saints or mormonism um, but we also talk about more general theological discussions within christianity and uh that's kind of what i do and and occasionally i, I engage in these theological debates and so looking forward to this one all right. Thank you, Jacob, for joining us. All right, Andrew, you're up next, man. Go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, man. Hey, my name is Andrew Harrison, and uh, I just enjoy debating and talking to people, and, you know, it's a good way to learn and stuff. I run the Last Hour Apologetics page. You can find it on YouTube or uh, Facebook. And then, um, you know, if you don't like apologetics or not just apologetics, you can also check out my um, other channel on YouTube, which I deal with drums. And you can find that at MonkeyJack1. All right, all right. Thank you, Sky, so much for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, now what we're going to do, we're going to jump into this debate, man. We're not going to waste any more time. Once again, the topic of this debate is Jesus and the Father the same substance, or is Jesus the same substance as the Father? Uh, Jacob, you're arguing the negative. Andrew, you're arguing the affirmative. And so we're going to start that with 10-minute opening statements. Then we're going to follow that with five-minute rebuttals. We're going to have a 40-minute cross-sex. As uh, not like what we usually do, we're going to break those 20 minutes to segments. So 10 minutes for Andrew, 10 minutes for Jacob. Jacob, 10 minutes for Andrew, 10 minutes for Jacob, and that's going to equate to a 40-minute cross X, and then after that, we're going to have five-minute closings, and then we've got some 30, about a 30-minute Q&A from the audience. Sounds good? Sounds good. All right, Sounds Andrew, good. you'll argue the affirmative in this debate, so you're up first to present your opening statement, and you'll have 10 minutes, and once again, remember this chime. That chime will let you know that you have one minute left in your presentation, so you want to start concluding at that point. Uh, with that said, I will start your 10-minute timer as soon as you begin to speak. All right. Well, thank you again, Marlon, for having me on and for Jacob for agreeing to debate. All right. Well, this debate mostly lies on the son's preexistence because it is there that we find the reason he is of the same substance as the father. We can boil this down for two reasons. One, the reason the Son is of the Father's substance is because the Son is the Father's Word, which is in John's Gospel. He is the Logos of the Father. That is to mean the Father's reason and logic. St. John was placing the divine figure of the person of Jesus and connecting both the Old and New Testament. Example, the Lord beget me, uh, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds uh, of long ago. From of old I was formed, and at first before the earth. 
the Father beget his Logos, the Son, in eternity's past, and because of this, we get the Nicene Creed's defining moment. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father. And number two, the Bible and the early church distinguished between God and matter. Just like the Father, the Son is uncreated and eternal, without beginning, and creator of all things. They are of a different substance than matter because matter is not divine and it had a beginning. That said, homoousius means one substance or same substance. This means that the Son, the Logos, is fully God, yet distinct in his personas or in the Greek, hypostasis. He is not a creature created by God the Father that the Arians were teaching, neither another God that my opponent believes. We can view this too as same essences. Eusebius of Caesarea, the historian that was present at the Council of Nicaea, not to be confused with uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia, the Arian, wrote this when he defined homoousius, quote, that he is of the same substance with the Father then simply implies that the Son of God has no resemblance to created things, but is in every aspect like the Father, only who begat him, and that he is of no other substance or essence but of the Father. To which doctrine explained in this way, it appeared right to assent, especially since we know that some eminent bishops and learned writers among the ancients have used the term homoousius in their theological discourse concerning the nature of the Father and the Son. We can boil this down really to mean that there are two substances, one of creation and one of God's uncreated divine substance. Note that Eusebius tells us that the pre-Nicaea church fathers used the concept of the Father and Son's substance. So the following quotes come from church fathers who used this concept of one substance starting in the middle of the third century to the beginning of the second nearly 250 years prior to Nicaea. This is paramount because it shows us that the bishops of Nicaea weren't making things up. They weren't simply, con they were simply contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints per Jude's epistle. As you will see, Jesus being of the same substance is a long-held belief. Dionysus, A.D. 245, Quote, the plant that springs from the root is something distinct from that which it grows up, yet it is of one nature with it. The river which flows from the spring is something distinct from the spring, for we cannot call either the river a spring or the spring a river. Nevertheless, we allow that they are both one according to nature and also one in substance, and we admit that the spring may be conceived of as father and that the river is what is begotten of the spring. Origin, A.D. 230. If then it is once rightly understood that the only begotten Son of God is his wisdom existing in substance, I do not know whether our curiosity ought to advance beyond this. Tertullian, A.D. 210. I derive the Son from no other source but from the substance of the Father. Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 190. When First John says that which was from the beginning, he touches upon the generation without beginning of the Son, who is coexistent with the Father. The Word itself, that is, the Son of God, who being by equality of substance one with the Father, is eternal and uncreated. Irenaeus, A.D. 185, quote, carefully then has the Holy Spirit pointed out by that has been said Jesus' birth from a virgin and his essence that he is God. For the name Emmanuel indicates this. And my personal favorite from him, that which is begotten of God is God. Athenagoras, A.D. 150, we employ language that makes a distinction between God and matter. For we acknowledge a God and a Son, his Logos, and a Holy Spirit, united in substance. And last, but certainly not the only one, Justin Martyr, A.D. 120. This power, Christ, was begotten from the Father by his power and will, but not by abscission, i.e. cutting off, as if the essence of the Father was divided. 
There are many, many more. And I felt this important to note because despite my opponent's belief in the universal great apostasy, there is evidence of one of this one substance belief all the way back well into the early second century, which I would not argue that they came up with this. Rather, it was handed down by the apostles. If they came up with it, then it's up to my opponent to pinpoint where the correct belief ended and the false began, appealing to the overused and tired excuse that Greek philosophy distorted Christianity is inadequate. At most, this is a guilt by association fallacy, and at, le and at least it's a red herring. This leads to the, the son being the father's logos of the father, which is the belief held in the logos doctrine. The early church unanimously referenced Proverbs 8 as proof, quote, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. Even Arius used this verse for Jesus, Jesus being the logos, except for him, it was proof that there was a time when the son was not. Proverbs 8 talks about God's word and wisdom, i.e., you know, that which made the world. Proverbs 3.19 adds, By wisdom the Lord Yahweh laid the earth's foundation. By understanding he set the heavens in place. And in Genesis, then God said, and there's also Colossians 1, 15 through 17, quote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. To quote Theophilus of Antioch of 168 AD, the word always exists, residing in the heart of God. For before anything came into being, he had him as a counselor, being his own mind and thought. But when God wished to make all that he determined, he beget his word, uttered the firstborn of all creation. The fact that these early Christians reflect the Nicene Creed should lend credence to the truthfulness of it. To dismiss the creed would be to nearly dismiss the past 300 years prior to Nicaea. Because the creed is simply a condensed reflection of the church's belief. To add to what the scriptures say, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. As for the Bible, examples of the Father and Son's uncreated substance and that of all creation in scripture are clear as day. God alone has immortality, per 1 Timothy 6.16. And all else had a beginning, quote, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. God alone created all things, see Ephesians 3.9, Colossians 1.16, John 1.3, and Revelations 4.11, which states all things came into existence. For you, for, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's one thing to say that all things were created, and another, another thing to say that they came into existence. Because nowhere in Scripture, or the early church fathers, do we ever see that anything else is eternal. After all, God alone has immortality. Scriptures give these actions to the Father and the Son and nothing else. He is independent of his creation because he alone is immortal. Nothing or no one created fa the Father or Jesus. They never came into being like that of creation. As for God's name, it is I am or I am that I am, as this meant that God is the uncreated self-existent one. Both the Father is Yahweh and Jesus is Yahweh. One example is in Genesis 19.24, quote, Then the Lord Yahweh rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord Yahweh out of heaven. It's also important to note that the earliest Christian authors, such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian, all universally read this passage as referring to two persons. They all maintained this while also adhering to the belief in one God. The Word was with God, and that is to mean his logos and his reason. The Word was God, and that is to mean he is of the same substance and the very image of the invisible God.
If the Father beget the Logos, who is his word and Logos, then that would make him God, and if the and of the same substance, as he is not divided or cut off from the Father. To close, my opponent has a non-biblical and yet inconsistent view of God's oneness, which he will probably bring up. For example, in Isaiah 43.10, before me no God was formed, and after me none will come. Isaiah 45.22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And one of my favorites, which is Psalms 86.10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God, Elohim. For these verses highlight God's incomparability, similar to Michael Heiser's uh, view concerning the divine counsel. He says Yahweh's, Yahweh is species unique and creator of all things, which would include other Elohim, which are God, How, which are gods. However, if we see, uh, however, we see time and time again that the word and angel messenger is worshipped and viewed as Yahweh. In every respect, this, this second hypostasis of Yahweh is Yahweh. Yet if we are to take my opponent's interpretation of the Father and Son's oneness, we have come to a contradiction. How then can one God say he is God alone and there is no one like him, yet there is another like him? Why boast about your incomparability when you literally have another God right beside you that is equal in unity and purpose? Right. This is right, simply Andrew, misleading. That, that's that's time right there, Andrew. Thank you so much for your opening statement. And now, Jacob, you are in a seat for your opening statement. And I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Okay. All righty. So to, uh, today's debate is on if Jesus and the Father share the same substance. Now, right off the bat, we have an issue. Because uh, according to the New Testament, uh Jesus had a physical body after the resurrection, a physical substance. So if Jesus was fully God when he appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he, God, had a body, a physical substance. But my opponent is going to say that God is immaterial. And so I just wanted to start with this as a sample of the kind of incoherence that you will see from my opponent tonight and from anyone who tries to defend the Trinitarian philosophy. So moving on. Um, to begin, we must understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is. The idea of the Trinity is not merely the notion that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. After all, Latter-day Saints believe that they are one. Even our Book of Mormon says they are one. Rather, the philosophy of the Trinity is an interpretation of what it means to say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. This is critical to remember. No one here is debating if God is one. We are debating what that means. This philosophy of the Bible is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible is the Trinity used to explain God's oneness. And it's a historical fact that this Trinitarian philosophy came about well after the New Testament was written. It's a Hellenistic philosophy that interprets the oneness of God in Scripture to mean that God is the same being, substance, or essence shared by three individual and separate persons. 
But how could three persons share the same being, substance, or essence? Well, this is something that intelligent Christians will rightly say is a mystery that we can't comprehend. And thus, they wisely cop out of trying to explain this logically incoherent idea. But what is meant by God's oneness? Does the Bible answer this? Yes, it does. In fact, Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John answer what is meant by the oneness of God. Jesus says, when he prays for his disciples, he says the following, that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that they may be one even as we are one. I'm going to repeat that for everyone. He says that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus literally addressed and answered what is meant by the oneness of himself and the Father. And Jesus was not talking about a superficial unity in preaching, as my opponent may argue. He was talking about a profound oneness. He said, and I quote, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. Do you see the depth here? Jesus was not saying, hey guys, uh, you know, be a good united team out there when you go out to preach. Jesus was inviting his disciples to perfection and union with himself and his father. He was essentially praying that they would become joint heirs with him to God's glory and perfection. He was calling them into the divine nature, into the oneness of the nature that he and the Father shared. So, uh, there are three reasons why any person should reject the Trinitarian philosophy as the explanation for God's oneness. That is, the historical reasons, the scriptural reasons, and the logical reasons. Now, I will only briefly hit on the historical reasons since anyone can Google the origins of the Trinitarian philosophy and see that neither the word Trinity or even the concept of the Trinity is found in the Bible as the explanation for God's oneness. Instead, it came about in the second or third century as Christians mixed Platonic philosophy with Christian teachings to try and reconcile the oneness of God with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Historically speaking, it is a fact that the Trinitarian God has four, far more in common and to do with Plato and Aristotle's conception of God as an unmoved mover rather than the God of Moses or Jesus that spoke with people like Moses face to face in Scripture. In speaking of the Scriptures, let's move on to that problem. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus is speaking of the second coming, and he says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. If Jesus and the Father are one mind or being, how is it that the Father knows things that the Son doesn't know? And how is it that Jesus, who, who is fully God, doesn't know all things, but that the Father does? In Luke 22, 42, Jesus says, not my will be done, but thine be done. If Jesus and the Father are both God, how could they have a conflict of wills? 
This scripture clearly shows that the Father and the Son have independent wills. Is God divided? How about in John 14, 28, where Jesus says, My Father is greater than I. How could the Father be greater than the Son if the Son and the Father shared the same being, essence, and substance, and were both one eternal, unchanging God? While on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thought Jesus was that unchanging God. What or who is he talking to? In Matthew 17, 18, Jesus says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. If God and Jesus were the same being, why would Jesus make a distinction between the good the goodness of God's nature and the goodness of his own? How about in John 17, 3, Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples, and he says, And this is life eternal, that they know you, the only true God. He does say, and Jesus whom thou have sent, but it would seem that Jesus, who Jesus was praying to, was the only true God, and he makes a clear distinction between himself and that only true God. Interestingly, Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, clearly distinguishes between the Father and Son in chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, where he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You see again how the Father is the one God and Jesus is distinguished from that one God? Furthermore, Paul does not say that Jesus and the Father are even equals, let alone the same uh, God. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, quote, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. If Christ was God, why would he say that God is the head of Christ? And how about Stephen when he dies in Acts 7? In that vision, he said he saw two beings. He said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing on the right hand of God. And I could go on and on. The Bible not only does not teach the Hellenized Trinitarian version of God created in the second century, it directly refutes it. But my opponent will ignore this and just presuppose that the oneness of God just must mean Trinity because that's what the early church fathers in the second and, and third century said, contrary to what the scriptures teach. Now, last, let's look at the third problem, the problem of logic. And it's pretty simple. It is logically incoherent to posit the idea of three persons that have the same being because you having your own individual being is what makes you an individual person. How can you be your own person without your own being or essence? In addition, I want you to watch closely for something in this debate. My opponent will conflate the use of the word God. He will use God to describe a person, three persons, a nature, a mind, and an essence or substance. The issue is that these are all different things. So when he says God, we will not even be able to tell what he's talking about. And thus he will use confused language to convince us that three persons can share the same essence when essence by definition is the essential properties that make one person separate from another. Or we can simply avoid all this unnecessary incoherent Trinitarian philosophy and just face the oneness of God that Jesus gave us in John 17. And also realize that in John 17, he was calling us to be joint heirs with Christ, as, as Paul said in Romans 8, 17.
We are children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And with that, I yield my time. All right, thank you so much for the openings, guys. And now we're gonna drop into our rebuttal rounds. Uh, once again, these are five minute rebuttals. And so Andrew, you're back in the seat and I will start your five minute timer as soon as you begin to speak. All right, well, the same thing that he accuses me of presupposing into the text is exactly what he's doing by presupposing a separate unity of gods into the text. For one thing, I, you know, I, John 17, all right, so this is a used and abused text by the LDS because it is about unity. But what kind of unity are we are we talking about? For instance, when Jesus, you know, you could you could take it like this. So he's talking about the earthly ministry. And we know this because he says it right in the text where it says, my prayer is not for them. I pray also for those who believe on me through their message that all of them may be one just as the father is in me and I in you. So he's talking and it's correlating back to um, when Jesus kept saying, um, you know, believest thou not that I am in the father and the father in me. The words that I speak is uh, unto you. I speak not of myself, um, but the father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the work. So it's he's using his ministry to see like, well, this unity that I have in the father through my works, believe it. And he's saying this unity that we are supposed to have within the church will point to the message that is what is being preached, which is, you know, Christ. And not to mention, um, he says, like, he kind of contradicted himself. I don't know if, you know, obviously he wrote this beforehand, but he says that um, it did not come centuries later as for the Trinity. But then he also says that it starts in the second century. So as I said in my opening statement, I would really like to understand where the... Um, the the disconnect happened from the first century to the second century because we have justin martyr who outright says um in the first century you know not by cutting off as is the substance the essence of god is divided because as i said in my um opener it's the jesus is the lord um he is the word that was begotten of God. This is the, as I pointed out, continuous understanding of it. And for instance, um, where it says, let me see if I can find it, the son's preexistence. Like, like who is the father begetting? It says, my heart has dictated a good word and I beget thee out of my bosom before the dawn. So there is the Trinity in the Old Testament. It, there was, a, you can actually look it up from, I think it's non simple powers in heaven. So there is. Inflating person which person yeah yeah andrew you're breaking up pretty bad uh, i'm gonna stop the time here let's see if we can get that audio under control um you're breaking up pretty bad there um it looked like yeah all right look like it's stable now i did stop your time so uh you can continue on uh with your, with your with your rebuttal you have about two minutes two minutes and 17 seconds left so uh you can continue on okay so I guess I'm, I guess I'll finally hit on uh, the Father is greater than I. See what he's doing is presupposing that that the Father being greater means greater in being or greater in stats is like as if they're uh, um, they're separate gods. But you know the Father is greater, but um, that 
is how greater and the and the father is also greater in Christ's humanity as per uh, you know uh, Philippians 2 6 through 8 which says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no uh, reputation uh, to quote this, I, I can't pronounce his name, but he, he Amprostor or something, I butchered that, but he says he knew he was the father's equal, but rather than claim that equality, he submitted himself. This submission, though, is one of the central beliefs of the plan of salvation that centers on Christ becoming human, the hypostatic union on why he even has a body, and for our sake, this equality is... Um, this equality is true because the divine word of God is the one God of Israel. Essentially, we need to distinguish what belongs to his nature and what, what belongs to God's plan of salvation, which is God in the flesh who condescended to be a servant and to serve and save as many as will come. It's the reason the gospel is even a thing. So, yeah, so be be on the lookout, and I want to say as well that he was um, quoting like um, the Greek philosophy, which I'm assuming that I, I guess that he was going to bring up, which is a red herring and a guilt by association. Like for instance, are we going to accuse G uh, Jesus of copying Plato because Plato says no one sins knowingly, and then Jesus said, "Forgive them; they know not what they do." Essentially, Plato's philosophy of the One is like Christianity's view. However, it stops there. The early Christians understood that the philosophy of the Greeks did have some similarities, but they did not adopt that. That is simply a, a, a red herring and a guilt by association because the church was moving into uh, different right. regions of the world. All right, that's time right there. Thank you, Andrew, for that rebuttal. Jake, uh, you're back in the seat once again, and I will start your five-minute timer for your rebuttal when you begin to speak. Okay, so I just want to go through the, the areas that my opponent was not able to rebut. Um, first of all, I'll start with the logical problem, because there's kind of three problems, the logical, the historical, and the scriptural problems. Um, logically, I'm having a very hard time even understanding what my opponent means when he says God. Is he talking about a nature? Is he talking about an essence? Is he talking about a substance? Is he talking about a person? And these are different things. But he's not reconciling that. He's not defining it. And so there's all this conflation. He'll say the word God and you don't know what he's saying because he he literally uses it and conflated in different ways. So it's just incoherent. So logically, I'm not even understanding how he even he tried to address that problem because he hasn't been able to define what he even means by God. Um, the other thing I'll go to is the historical problem when it comes to Greek philosophy and its influence. Uh, the noted historian Robert L. Wilkin, who's not a Latter-day Saint, explains the following. He says, since the time of the apologists first began to offer a reasoned and philosophical presentation of Christianity to pagan intellectuals, Christian thinkers had claimed to worship the same God honored by the Greeks and the Romans. In other words, the deity adored by other reasonable men and women. Indeed, Christians adopted precisely the same language to describe God as did the pagan intellectuals. The Christian apologist Theophilus of Antioch described God as ineffable, inexpressible, uncontainable, incomprehensible, inconceivable, incomparable, unteachable, immutable, without beginning because he was uncreated, immutable because he was immortal. This view that God was an immat immaterial, timeless, and impassable divine being who was known through the mind 
This became the keystone of Christian apologetics, for it served to establish a decisive link to the Greek spiritual and intellectual tradition. So what you have is you had Christians, this isn't just like guilt by association. They're literally using the Greek terms to describe God. And these terms that they're using to describe God literally contradict what the Bible says about him. They say God has no parts or passions and is immutable and all this stuff. Yet the Old Testament God spoke face to face with Moses. Jesus Christ resurrected. Jesus Christ, fully God, resurrected with a body, a material substance. How can you be of a material substance and be of the same substance of the Father, but God has no materiality? This makes no sense. Um, and it was clearly the influence of the Greek philosophy that brought about these terminologies that you see rife in Christianity only within the Hellenized world. That's the reason you don't find these terminologies in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament who still were not Hellenized to the degree that the later Gentile Christians were. Now, uh, let's talk about the scriptural case here. First of all, John 17 is a perfectly sufficient explanation for the oneness of God. There's no need to create this entire doctrine of the Trinity when John 17 provides a sufficient explanation for what is meant by God's oneness. And it reconciles all the rest of the other texts. There's nothing in there that can say that God's nature, if you want to talk about God as a nature, that that nature cannot be shared between the Father and the Son as distinct individuals. If my opponent is just arguing that God is a nature, well, then I agree. We're on the same page. And multiple beings can have their own nature and share in the divine nature. And in fact, that according to John 17 and according to Romans, where we're talked about as children and joint heirs with Christ, an heir inherits what the father has. They, they become like the father. They become the king, the ruler. That is what that scripture is inviting us to. What we're talking about and what Je Jesus is talking about in the oneness of God, the best explanation if you stick to scripture and not run over to Greek Hellenized philosophy is that Jesus is calling us into a type of relationship with God where we share in his nature and become as he is, where we as children of God become like God. And with that, I'll give my time. All right. Thank you guys so much for the openings and the rebuttals. And so now we're going to jump into our cross examination. And uh, I suspect this would be a fantastic cross X. Uh, once again, this would be a total of 40 minutes. Uh, both of you will get 20 minutes total. And that will be broken down to 10 minute segments. Um, that said, uh, the only time I will jump in is if I feel that the conversations veer too far off subject or if I hear ad hominems being thrown at each other and and I do not expect you guys to do such a thing. Uh, but that said, um, I will give you guys the floor and Andrew, you up first for your first 10 minute cross X of Jacob. And I'll start your time as soon as you begin to ask your first question. Okay, so um, is Jesus a God? Yes. Is the Father a God? Yes. So in what sense can the Father and Son be one God? Uh, it depends on what you mean by God. I use God as a title and or nature that is being described that a being has obtained. 
So I, I, for instance, I am a human and my father are human. We are, you know, we are humans, but we, and we share that nature, that human nature. And so, you know, we are both, um, but we both are our own individual persons. Would you also say that uh, Yahweh, the I am that I am, Yahweh is a title as well? No, I would say that's a proper name. Okay. So I guess I want to highlight um, a verse, you know, that show, shows Yahweh's incomparability with other gods, such as uh, Isaiah 37, 16 and 20, when it says, O Lord Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made the heavens and earth. Now, therefore, O Lord, O Yahweh, our God, save us from the hand and all that the kings on the earth may know that thou art the uh, art Yahweh, even thou only. If Yahweh is as incomparable as these verses attest, uh, attest and it's clear that these text and as you said this is a personal name how can you then say that there is another god in unity because i understand that you say you know the god has is a, you know god is a title but this is a personal name over and over and over again we see that yahweh alone is distinct among other gods but yet you posit that there are two other and i guess for this debate you would say one other god alongside him in unity and purpose. Can you explain how that would make sense? Yeah, um, you have to recognize that all of this is being talked about in a polytheistic world. In that polytheistic world, uh, the the ancient Hebrews saw their God as the, the God that was better than all of the other polytheistic gods that were out there. And therefore, um, when they said that our God is basically the top God, they're basically crapping on all the other gods of all of the other nation states that, that are around them. And, and real quick, one, one final point on this, um, that they uh, saw their God as incomparable to the other false deities that were out there. And they also were saying that there was a oneness in God that was dis different than the polytheistic gods because the polytheistic gods all had their own agenda you had hera and zeus or whatever all the different the, the egyptian gods and these gods all kind of had their own thing they were describing that our god is not like that our our god is one and so they didn't have a concept of a trinity at all but they did exist in a henotheistic world but what god are you referring to uh, the God, Yahweh. You said that God is a title. You said God is a title. So you know it, who, who's Yahweh. Yahweh is a is a name, a proper name. God can be used as a title, and that's the way generally when I use it. That's generally what I'm speaking of. But I also can use God either as a title or in reference to a specific being. In which case, I would talk about the Father as God. But I will, in, for the sake of this debate, if I use the term. Father, if I'm talking about a person, I'll say the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. If I'm talking about a title, I will say divine or divinity. And then if I'm talking about like a specific deity, then we can do that. Now, Yahweh in our tradition is understood to be Jesus Christ, although we, we do leave a little caveat that they may not always 
in the scriptures have, they only had one, they didn't have a conception of father and son. So while we believe that they are referring to the son, they may at times also be referring to the father or even to the Godhead generally, because they didn't have a conception but, of a father, son, Holy Spirit. But where is this distinction in the Old Testament? I think there's a, there's a, a very clear distinction between the word that appears such as um, the angel, which is a messenger of God, you know, it, you know, um, there are certain instances in, in Genesis where the word of, you know, the word comes and visits Abraham, which we can see as, you know, would be the pre-incarnate Jesus. But yet we also see in the uh, New Testament that no one has ever seen God the Father at any time. So who are they actually seeing? So, and could you at least, like, who are they actually seeing? Because you, you, you keep saying that, um, you know, it could be the father and that, but then you're admitting are, through, you know, are you asking who, who is that, Moses? Who is Moses saying? I just want to get clarification. Like when Moses saw God like, and spoke to him face to face, are you asking who he was seeing? Yeah, not just Moses, like Abraham, um, Jacob, you know, all the, all those instances. Who are they seeing? Uh, I would say the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it's they didn't have a, a even a godhead notion in the old testament they didn't have a godhead notion and they did not have a trinitarian notion those were developed later on when jesus came and actually revealed a more full nature of who god was so these ancient people didn't have a full conception of that they were dealing with a a, a three person uh godhead from our perspective or as you would say a three person trinity so for either of us, we're in the but, same position looking at the Old Testament in that the Old Testament does not, it, it does not give you a three-person uh, uh, God. It just doesn't. And so the, if you're asking the, who, who Yahweh was or who, uh, you know, who, who, who are they referring to with the angel of the Lord versus Yahweh, I don't think that those distinctions were made very clearly in the Old Testament because I don't think the people understood those. And Jesus came to clarify those. So, uh, that's I, I think that you I, I don't see how that can be possible um, because it's obvious that you know second Jewish second uh, temple literature and stuff distinguish and they actually had con like uh, doctrines of the two powers of heaven that they were coming to this understanding that there are two powers in heaven how can one how can God say no one can see him face to face but yet they saw God face to face that kind of deal but what I wanted to say is you know in the LDS you know understanding is that Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. And and yet he's not the most with, high, right? Just, just real quick, God. with a little bit of a with a little bit of a caveat there, because I don't want you to, to straw man what we're saying. It's uh uh it is what the, the, you know, it is, we do generally believe that that was who it's referring to, that Jesus was the active agent interacting with the people of Israel as Yahweh, as God's sort of messenger or interface with the world, the father's interface with the world. And so, but, but we don't say that that's necessarily always the case. But if I may add, like you accuse us of, of being so vague about God, but here there is, and your own view of God in the Old Testament is incredibly vague. But yet when we try to pinpoint which God is speaking, which God is doing what, you can't tell us. Because like in Genesis 
14.22, it says, And Abraham said unto the king of Sodom, I have lift up my head unto Yahweh, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And Psalm 7.17, which says, I praise Yahweh according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh, Most High. So it, I, it seems to me like that's obviously, if we're using your understanding of this stuff, that's Jesus, right? The Most High. No, I would say that we don't know who they're referring to exactly because they didn't know who they're referring to exactly. And we would agree on that. They did not have a Father, Son, Holy Spirit concept of God. So the question I would I would ask you, but it's not your time, obviously, is the, the I'll ask this rhetorically that, that a person has to ask themselves is the question of well, which person are they referring to? If that's a proper name, are they referring to the Father? Are they referring to the Son? Or are they referring to the Holy Spirit? And so, or are well, they it's... referring to divinity proper? And I could see it either way. Maybe they're referring to directly to Jesus Christ, or maybe they're referring to the Godhead and using the name Yahweh because that was the understanding that they have. The reason that we're vague, if you want to call it that, is because the Old Testament isn't clear. The Old Testament authors were dealing with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of us would agree that are Christians, but what we're pointing out here is that they didn't realize that. It was Jesus Christ who came but, to reveal that nature. I feel like that that just ex, ex, it, it gives it gives you like I feel like that was just an excuse for you to for you to have vagueness in the Old Testament, but when I push to show who it, which God is speaking here, because it's not just one God. You even said they're they're dealing with a polytheistic uh, worldview, so it's three gods in unity. Yet Yahweh is a distinct name for one deity, but yet y'all believe that Yahweh is Jesus. So which, so I, but I don't no, feel which like... person? Which but again, which person then is it? You know, like, and I guess maybe as we get down to the time here, that that maybe. I can ask that question to you. <laughs> well, might as well. All right. That is time for Andrew first uh, cross X of Jacob. Jacob, you are now up for your first cross X of Andrew. 10 minutes. All right, Andrew. So we agree. Do you agree that Yahweh is a proper name? Yes. It refers to a person correct that's what a it that's what a proper name god. does is god a person it uh, i guess you could say in a sense that it is a title but not necessarily just a title it does describe um you know god elohim is i guess you would say a divine being but so yahweh, yahweh is so yahweh elohim. is not a, so is yahweh a proper name yes does a proper name refer to like Yahweh, does that refer to the name of a person? It would refer to both because what you're doing is you're conflating person to also mean uh, a being, right? Uh, I, I guess isn't, I, I'm isn't just a assuming person, that isn't a person a being. Yes, but the understanding of the theological, you know, terms behind person is persona or hypostasis, which just denotes that there is a sort of, um, I know hypostasis the, is an underlining reality. It doesn't denote does, does there the, also being a being. Does the Bible teach hypostasis? It, it shows us that there are two distinctions within God. We see that there is one God, but yet, especially in the Old Testament, how that the Lord 
Yahweh, we can be viewed as the Father, and then the Word is also worshipped, the angel is worshipped and seen as Yahweh. Those are two hypostases. Okay, so let's, let's uh, I'm going to pull something real quick on the screen here. Um, and, and just so we can see, so premise one, Jesus has a body. You'd agree with that, right? That Jesus resurrected with a body? Yes. Would you agree that Jesus is God? Yes. So doesn't the logical conclusion of that mean that God has a body? Just well, wouldn't you say that's a straw man though? Because I think you're avoiding the fact that um, Jesus, you're avoiding the hypostatic union. So the in in the hypostatic the union, does the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same substance? What do you mean? Well, do the do does the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? share the same substance yes is physical is a physical body a substance it is another it's a another hypostasis of uh you know, the hypostatic union yeah but it's so, you're uh, you're avoiding the distinctions within the three persons the three personas the hypostasis it's okay. the word so, that came down yeah. So are you talking about like, I, I guess I'm confused though. How can you're talking about persons and being as if you can have three persons that share the same being, how can three persons share the same being? I thought having your own being because, is what made you a, a person, an individual because person. The, the terms that we are using within the Trinitarian formula, like the Latin is persona the greek is hypostasis Te those do not denote that evolve revolve around there has to there having to be a being like i think that persona come you know don't quote me on this but it was something about a, a, an actor wearing a mask it's it's a reality it's a a, a a the personhood you know it's not necessarily just uh you know revolving around their need to being a being that's simply you know, using English terminology and applying it to the Trinity way later, earlier. Okay, so um, could you provide me with an explanation as to three persons can share the same essence? So in, in particular, I think, you know, especially for this debate, at least because it's, you know, the Jesus and the Father. For instance, um, like I said in my opener, the the father is the father, the essence, all right? And they use the analogy of the father being a mind, all right? I guess you could say. And then the logos is the wisdom, the logic of the father. And so at an eternity's past, before creation, before the creation of the world, God beget the logos. That's the reason why Justin, Justin Martyr said in the early second century, it wasn't by abscission, like cutting off, there's still one essence. So that's what we're talking about is they're fully one God, but it's God the Father and his word, the begottenness. That's what it's referring to. Are your words a separate person? Well, actually, Tertullian made made that uh, astute, you know, that that observation where it was like he, he was using the analogy where it's like um, when you're silently conversing with yourself every word every thought meets you with a word and that in of itself could be a second person and he said how much more fully is this integrated into god whose image is that image that you know we are made af 
after. So I guess you could technically say yes, but we were talking about God here and stuff. Um, is it possible for God to not know something? No. Are you referring to? I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm. A, yeah. Is God? Is God omniscient? To, the like, does He know everything? Yes. Has Jesus always been God? Yes. So, why in Mark 30, 13, 32 does He say that He doesn't know the day or hour, but only the Father does? Well, this was in respect to Him condescending to a human. He so when was, he was in human, reliance. Was Jesus ever not God? He was always God, but it's in that respect of him being a human. And there's also that understanding as well that it's not just that it's the Father who calls to his coming. And I'm trying to find the verse as well where it says, I can't find it just a quote, but um, I think it's in Matthew where it says after his um, – uh, glorification he rose from the grave and everything peter says well you know all things you know all things so it's like during his earthly ministry where he forsook his um you know and in, in, you know uh philippians and so stuff, he wasn't he, so he wasn't fully god during his ministry he is fully god was he fully god during his ministry yes yet during his ministry he didn't know the time or hour but only the father did is that what happened? So that, but that's what I'm saying. It's his, he took on human nature. It was that nature where he was reliant on the father. But I also want to say like, I, um, it's that sense where it's like the father is the one who calls into him coming back. He was the one that so says. He was, so but, he was fully human during his ministry. Is that correct? Yes. He was fully human. Okay. Was Jesus created? His nature, I guess if you want to say his divinity, no. His, the word, no, was never created. Okay. So how could he be fully human if one of the characteristics of being human is that you are created? Could, was, isn't it impossible to him, for him ever to be fully human? If he was never created, because he he wouldn't have been fully human like us, because he wasn't created, but we are. But I that but he took on flesh, so I think you're 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 avoiding the I, again. You're not taking into consideration the hypostatic union, the the divinity, the the divine nature and the human nature took on is one flesh, or you know hypostasis is you know his two natures. I, I and the. And that, but that the nature of a human being is to be a creature. So how could he have been fully human? We can say that he looked like a human, he took on human form, but he couldn't have been fully human, right? Because a fully human person is created. Yes, but I'm con like, I, I completely understand what you're, you know, where you're coming from. It's like, he, in a sense, his human nature did come into existence, but it's his human nature, not his divine nature. Okay. Did, did, does God have parts? No. Okay. 
Did the resurrected Jesus have parts? Did he have a head and hands and a side that was pierced that's, and holes in his hands? That's not what parts mean. Um, it means it's a unified being where it's like it's all one thing. That's the reason why we would say like um, when Jesus, when the when the word was beget from the father, he wasn't cut off. Like, and so that one being, did but, it have flesh and bones? Through the hypostatic union, the word did take on flesh and bones. All right, Andrew, you're up for your final 10-minute cross-ex of Jacob. And I will start your time as soon as you begin your first question. All righty. So I just want to simply ask you, especially going back to my um, opening rebuttal, does the Nicene Creed, you know, specifically when it says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it says one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, you know, one substance. Does the Nicene Creed reflect the pre-Nicaea church? Um, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of pre-Nicaea church in that history does it re does it reflect like, it like the day before or literally does it reflect the church at the time the beliefs of the church at the time of jesus and the 12 in the new testament i would say no does it reflect the church of let's say the of the of 100 a.d i think it gets probably fairly close because these ideas began to develop during i would say the second century is when they started to develop but they weren't truly formalized until later so can you explain can you give me a an an understanding of when in the first century the the i guess you could say the end of the new testament from justin martyr from the beginning of first century where this corruption started leaking in that would establish that there was you know i guess your understanding of the universal great apostasy where did this distortion start to come in where they started melding what was obvious that you say in the New Testament is the Son is very distinct from the Father. Where did this start coming into? Well, the Son is actually not distinct, and he's in one essence with the Father. Can you are you able to pinpoint where that happened? Like an absolute exact date? No, but I think it's pretty clear that what is in the Nicene Creed, when compared to the writings of the New Testament, which I've cited multiple times here, that there are contradictions with the things that the New Testament is putting out and with the Nicene Creed. And I would say, in addition, like Justin Martyr you're talking about, you have to remember, Justin Martyr even said things that that contradict Trinitarianism. Like uh, Justin Martyr, uh, Martyr spoke of this second God being of second place to the Father. When, when he spoke, and, and I have a quote here from First Apology 13, um, and he's talking about uh, Christ, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, um, and that we, he's talking about us, and this is quoting him, and that we reasonably worship him, referring to Jesus, having learned that he is the son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place, and the prophetic spirit in the third we will prove. So even yes, Justin Martyr but... had a conception that wasn't a fully fledged Trinitarianism. Well, what you need, but then that, but the way you tried to say what he was saying kind of contradicts what he's saying before, because 
there was a form of, I guess you could say, subordinationism within the early thing, but they all still held to the one substance. My point is, so Justin Martyr, as I said, like when he beget the word, when the father beget the word, there was no cutting off. It's still one essence. It was not divided. So you have Justin Martyr from here, and then you have that that same consistent teachings where it says that he's one substance, one substance, all the way up to Nicaea, one substance. So I'm confused as to how the church could have stayed consistent for 300 years and then not want to stay consistent with what you said the New Testament directly contradicts what they're saying nearly like 70 years later. Like to me, that that doesn't make sense because their whole um, their whole thing is apostolic authority you know, being able to stay consistent with what the apostles taught. So I'm just, I don't see how, if you can help me understand, like there's that disconnect, there's that 70 year disconnect. What happened? You know, why, why were they able to stay consistent for 300 years to Nicaea, but couldn't have done that for the new Testament? Well, I think we just have to look to the new Testament and see, um, you know, you look at what Paul said, like, am I going to go with what Justin Martyr is saying or with what Paul says? Or with what Peter's saying, or what the the actual not... logical implication of what the New Testament actually says, with things like the fact that Jesus, uh, with all the the verses that I brought up, including like in First Corinthians one, First uh, uh, Corinthians eleven three, uh, you know, Paul says that the head of man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. That sort of subordinationism, the idea that the Son could somehow be less than the father in some way means that they're not equal in it's one God. Not, you can't have a God that would, that would suggest a God of parts. But what you're misunderstanding is the essence is what is in, in question. The essence is what in question. There's no dividing of the essence. They're equal in essence of the God, but distinct in their personas. There is this type of economic subordination within the Trinity. But I guess just, just to understand, you know, just so I, I understand what you're saying, can I ask a clarifying question? You use the term essence. I just want to understand what you mean by essence. Who God is, the entire like the essence. I guess you could say the substance for the, you know the substance of what God is. Okay, and, and again, I'm I'm trying to clarify here. I just I want to understand because you're, you're talking about substance and essence. What do you mean by by substance? That's the same thing. You can say substance essentially means essence. Substance is the essence of. It's what something is made up of. So Jesus is made up of the stuff. You could say substance. I guess you could say stuff of what the Father is made up. This divine substance. This essence. They're interchangeable. Okay. Okay. But what what I want to ask you as well, I guess from a you know, thing. So. Uh, we do have in the New Testament, Jesus is equal to the Father, such as John 18. We read, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And we read in Philippians 2, 5, and 6, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in form of God, which you can, which if you look at the word in form of, and you can see in nature of God as being in nature of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, both of these verses tell us that uh, Christ is equal with God. And especially when you go into Philippians, when it talks about um, he was in the form of God, in the nature of God, he was equal in that nature of God. So I guess I want to ask you, in what way is the, you know, Christ equal to God if you say the Father is greater. 
So, uh, you know, what way is he equal? In nature, they're both they're both perfected divine beings who have who are in a type of relationship and way of being in the universe that is considered godhood. And so in that sense, they are equal in that they are both at that level of perfection. But just like I may one day become a father, like my father before me physically, I'm talking about, like my dad, um, I will be equal to him in that I will be a man as well. But my father ultimately will always be my father. He is always, in a sense, one step ahead of me because I am dependent on him. <clears throat> but couldn't you also, uh, my thing is though, it, it just seems contradictory to say that there is a one God. There's one God, Yahweh, who is to be worshipped, to be praised, to be this and that. But then this yeah. I, most high Yahweh Jesus is then brought into the New Testament and is no longer the most high. You're you're not allowed to, you know, you're praying through him to the Father. And it just seems contradictory it, it just, to apply that. It just depends that. on what you're talking about when you talk about God. Again, we get down to the, this is, the, I would say, is the heart of this debate and the heart of the issue that we're going to have here. And that is, what do you mean when you say one God? Are you talking about one nature that is ultimate and divine? I agree. There is one nature that ultimately is the standard of perfection. It is the highest of all things. It's the highest that any being can attain to. And you could call that, we might call it divinity. We might call it God. And, and so you can reach that status. And so if you want to talk about it in that sense, that's fine. But, but if, if you're talking about why a person I, or a nature or an essence, these are all but different my concepts, the, but you're wrapping them runs in out, the word God. Oh, go but before the one minute runs out is the fact of the matter is you agree that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is if Jesus is Yahweh in the Old Testament, he is the most high God and no one is like him. So when he says when he says to the to the Jews, you know, I and the father are one and I'm equal to the father. And he like there. I don't see how then they are implying him to be another deity. They're not saying he's. You're making yourself a god. He's saying you're making yourself the god. So I just have an, uh, you know, a tough time saying because I, I would say that's a contradiction to say that Yahweh is the Most High, but then Yahweh, who is Jesus, comes in the New Testament and he has a Father greater than him. You know, where is that in the Old Testament? Um, I would just say that what they were mad about was the fact that he claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. He claimed to be the one who was interacting with them, and that was why they wanted to stone him. To say that you are the who God of the, the Old Testament high. in their mind, that yes, and he who and, is and the most is, high, <laughs> and Jesus is the most high in the sense that he is equal. He is part of the Godhead. He is part of this divine, uh, the divine Godhead that how, rules all things. All right, but that's how time can you right be there. the most that, high Andrew, and then have a greater father Andrew, than you? That's time right there. That's time. All right, Jacob, you're up next. Fine for your up next for your final cross X of Andrew. Okay, um, so we've been using the term God a lot. Um, what do you mean when you say God? God, I guess you would say is. If you would say, I guess if you're talking in the Trinitarian formula, it would be God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're all one 
divine nature, I guess you could say. One divine so you'd substance. Say, you'd say God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You could use it that way, yeah. Okay. So when you say God and I say Godhead, what they're ultimately we're talking about three distinct persons. And so when you say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I say Godhead, are we not ultimately referring to the same thing? You divide the substance. There are three yes. gods okay, in so, unity and your Godhead. So Jesus, who after Jesus, let's ask this question. When Jesus resurrected, he had a body, correct? Yes, but I'm I'm confused about how these questions relate to him being well, of the well, same substance. Well, let me substance. let me I'll, I'll I'll continue to ask. So, where did that body go? To the right hand of the Father in heaven to intercede for us. Okay, and uh, would you agree that um, Stephen, when he died, he described two beings, God and Jesus? No, Jesus on the right hand. Are you of, aware of that? God? Are you aware that at the right hand is an idiom of being equal in power? Okay. Because John um, says nobody has seen God the Father, no, nor can they. It is the Son that reveals them. So if no one can see him or ever see him, then obviously we can't say that scriptures are contradicting and uh, Stephen is seeing <laughs> the Father and them on some, you know. So you, pre you presuppose that scripture can't contradict itself. I would assume that if uh, God is who he says he is and he's going to, you know, what he's going to say is he's going to be consistent. Okay. Um, so Jesus, his body, he, does he still have it? Yes. And is that body a substance? Part of his substance? And the hypostatic union, yeah. So, God within the hypo. What do you mean by hypostatic union? That He took on flesh. The Word became flesh. The divine and, nature and of the Word and continues. And, took and does on flesh. He continue to have flesh today? He has a glorified body. Yes. So God has a glorified body. God, the the Son has a glorified body. Okay. And the Father is of the same substance as the Son, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, what do you mean? So when you describe God, you're talking about three persons? It depends on the context, but generally when I say God, it's, I, I would say mostly when you're referring to God, like I said, it's the Father. You're referring to the Father, and but you can refer to all three as God. Okay, so it could be you could be when you talk about God talking about a person, or you could be talking yes, about three persons. That's okay, it, it, when you talk. It would be up to her. when when you talk about God. Could you be talking about a nature? Define what you mean by nature. Um, the properties of a category of something. So, for
for instance, human nature. Um, you and I are both human beings. And so our nature is that of human nature. So a nature of as God. So I guess you could, I, I wouldn't, you, you're, when we say God, we're referring to God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, but it's also revolving around the Trinity, but the Trinity is all still one God. Um, so, okay. So let me, let me pull something on the screen. This is the classic, um, you know, God is the father is the son, but is, they are not each other. Um, so that thing in the middle there, that's God, right? Um, so you said that, but when you talk about God, you talk about God, you usually you're talking about the father or you might be talking about all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what's this thing in the middle that they all share? It would be the one substance. Okay. The essence. And what is that? So God, so wait, so the, God is not three persons or one person, he's an essence? God is the Father. The Father is, all right? And so that's what we say. But if you but look in at this... it, the, the Father begets the Word, okay, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. But you okay. could view it as the Father is. But I'm. I, but I'm the whole thing to... is. Yeah. Okay. So so, so you're what... saying that? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So when this happens, the begetting of the Word and the proceeding of the Spirit, but you know, the Word. There's no dividing of the substance. There's still the same substance. It's the Father, His Word, and the Spirit. And, and you keep saying substance. What do you mean? So if God is, so first we said God is a person, then we said God is three persons. Now we're saying that really what God is, He's the thing that links these three persons in the middle here, and so He is the substance. What is the substance? The substance is the divine. It there. Okay, so... The way they distinguished between this was that there was a substance of creation, all right, of non-divine creation because creation came into existence. It's not divine. But God's substance, his essence, is innately divine. It never came into being. It never uh, was created. That's what we mean. It's There's this divine, ever-existing substance that is you know, I guess you could, as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then there's creation what that is of a completely different substance. So that's what we mean is the divinity, the substance is that. That's I I thought I had defined defined it in and my what, opener. What is the, and what is so so and that's what I guess I'm trying to understand is if God is a substance, ultimately the substance that links these three things. What is that substance? Or I'm sorry, what do you mean by substance? I'm sorry, that was my question. What do you mean by substance? I feel like I just answered that, Bill. That's what I'm saying. The substance is God. It's the divine substance. It's just what God is. It's the divine substance. Just like all of creation, we are, it's like, that's why I, that, I'm trying to make, put it in very simple terms where it's creation, divine. So we God are not, is we don't the have substance. a divine essence. So so God is the substance and the substance is God. Isn't that just kind of a circular like you're not actually describing what a substance is you're saying this, I'm trying to understand what it is the, like, what you... the 
the attribute, I guess you could say, the initial thing is the divine substance. The Father has a divine substance, and we see that because the Father is eternal. This substance is eternal. It's not created, but yet everything else is created. That's uh, the logic behind it. So it's, an, God so it's is an uncreated. immaterial substance. Yes, it's not made of material. Okay, so isn't immaterial substance a contradiction in terms? Like if I say, hey, I have some substance in my hand, but it's not here. It's like, how can you have an immaterial substance? You're confusing terms that matter is a different, um, a different substance than God. God is not made of matter. We are, how do that's they, what I say, we're not. How does, a, how does an immaterial substance yield material substance without any material existence? I'm confused by that. Yeah, are, so are, like, are you saying God like, can't do something? I'm what I'm asking is, is how is it? that you can get materiality from immateriality. Like, like you might think immateriality might think like math, right? Math, how can math just like make, if it's immaterial, isn't there a, a realm of separation between the material and the immaterial? How can something I'm immaterial cause something material to happen? Because I, I'm, I, I'm just confused about what you what you're trying to you're implying there. I'm just I'm I just asking how something immaterial can cause something material to happen. What's well, a minute? We're done. Okay. Uh, you could Andrew since that question Jacob answered that asked that question before time expired. You do have a chance to respond if you want to. It's my thing is okay. So the. Immaterial and the material. I'm confused as how you're. That's an issue. Like, are you saying that all there is is material, and therefore material is material? I mean, I understand in your worldview, material materials. I guess you could say matter is eternal. So, and God just fashioned that. But I, it's like that immaterial. Like, I, I'm confused why that isn't a. You know, I I don't know. All right. All right, thank you guys so much for the very engaging Cross X. It's always appreciated to see two individuals engage in a very promising way. So thank you so much. And I think the audience also enjoyed you guys' engagement as well. So now that transitions us to the closing remarks. Those will be five minute closings. And once again, remember the one minute timer, uh, the one minute, one minute chime that'll let you know that it is time for you to start concluding your closing statements. So that said, Andrew, you have first for your five minute closing. And I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Well, again, I just want to thank Marlon for having us on. Thank you, Jacob, for a good debate. Um, so uh, I, I don't feel like um, a lot of my things were really answered. I think it, like he was assuming like I'm presupposing the stuff in there, but he's presupposing his stuff in there because where in the old testament does it say that there's a, a pagan it's like it, where I've, I've heard him say it where it's just like the gods of these other pantheons are always fighting and then the hebrew pantheon or whatever the godhead of that is in unity they're not fighting they're just in unity but where do you see that in scripture in reality he's coming he's coming to that understanding through secular uh, scholars who haven't 
sort of evolutionary kind of view when he comes into that, when they when they come into that, where they say like some of these people think that the Hebrews took Yahweh and he was a Canaanite God from another thing, which I'm assuming my opponent wouldn't even believe. But their view is how does this evolve and stuff? But you don't see that in the Bible. You just don't see it. And he didn't point that out anyway. And like I said, it's it's inconsistent to think that there are there is a subset of 300 years worth of history and these these church fathers. It's not just Justin Martyr. It, it's just Irenaeus and Tertullian and um, Ignatius and all them are saying that they're getting their doctrines from the apostles. And so, as I mentioned in my op opening statement, there's a consistency that the Son is one substance with the Father because the Father beget the Word. And so that wasn't even, I, I don't feel like that was even addressed by him, is how can you have 300 years of continued teachings of this 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 at this thing that really that matches the Nicene Creed point by point one substance and that's what all these church fathers said he didn't touch on that um and it's un it's just completely I just can't agree with the fact that there would there would be such a disconnect from from that thing but you know so I I guess I just want to end with this so you know in uh, John 14 20 at that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So this debate question is, is Jesus the same substance as the Father? And this really is kind of the gospel message in that through Jesus, we can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It is possible because it was the Word who is in every respect one essence with the Father that took down, that came down and took on flesh and became obedient unto death. This flesh of Christ connects us with God because, in a sense, he has become homoousius with us. This reconnects us with God again as we can have communion with him by putting on Christ as we have become one with Christ because Christ is one with God in a much deeper and meaningful way than we could have ever comprehended God says, my heart has dictated a good word, and I beget thee out of the bosom, his heart before the dawn. And it says, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him shall have eternal life. So, you know, in a sense, you know, we can have our disagreements. We can say that they are two essences, um, separate essences, separate substances. We can debate the stuff, but it really comes down to Christ, the word being God himself, coming down into the flesh and uh, becoming a servant for us and to save us. So with that, I just, uh, I guess we'll yield the rest of my time. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew, for that. All right, Jacob, you are up for your five minute closing and I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marlon, for, for having us. And Andrew, it's been a great debate. Enjoyed uh, doing this with you. Um, so I just have to let the audience know, though, that ultimately my opponent has failed tonight and uh, has not been able to deal <clears throat> satisfactorily with any of the problems presented, either the historical problem, the scriptural problem, or the logical problem. And I'll start with the logical one, because I don't know if you guys noticed, but if you watched in this debate, there was a lot of confusion around language. <laughs> and my opponent was struggling to define even the most basic terms in the debate, terms like substance, terms like God, 
Um, and if you don't define those terms, we don't really know what you're talking about. Um, I actually want to read <clears throat> something from Parley P. Pratt, one of our uh, early apostles writing about these, the creeds. Um, and he, he was quoting one of the creeds and he said, he quoted the creed saying, there is only one living and true God without bar body parts or passions consisting of three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And he goes on to say, quote, it is painful to the human mind to be compelled to admit that such wonderful inconsistencies of language or ideas have ever found place in any human creed, yet so it is. And I think tonight what we've witnessed is again that inconsistency of language that renders these things meaningless ultimately. Uh, Pratt goes on to say, but it is another way of saying, talking of these creeds, it is another way of saying there is a God who does not exist. A God who is composed of non-entity, who is the negative of all existence, who occupies no space, who exists in no time, who is composed of no substance, known or unknown, and who has no parts or properties in common with anything or being known to exist or which can possibly be conceived of as existing either in the heavens or on the earth. Such a God could never be seen, heard, or felt, but by any being in the, or, or, by, or by any being in the universe, there has never been a visible idol worshiped among men, which was so powerless as this God without body parts or passions. The God of Egypt, the crocodile could destroy, the images of different nations could be felt and seen. The Peruvian god, the sun, could diffuse its genial warmth and light and influence, but not so with the god without body, parts, or passions. That which has no parts has no whole. That which has no passions has no soul. So I think that he really nails that on the head. And my opponent is making this historical case like, oh, you have to show exactly when that went astray. No, I don't. I just have to show that what is in the New Testament is overwhelmingly Jesus Christ arisen with a body and that that body didn't go anywhere and that he has that body today and that that body is considered a substance. And then you say, well, that Jesus is one in substance with the father. And then I go, but Jesus has a body. <laughs> and so you refer to, well, hypostatic union to try and fix it, but that only creates parts. It creates the part of God that has a body and the part of God that does not have a body. And so you can't do that under the Trinitarian doctrine. Scripturally, it makes no sense. Historically, it makes no sense. And logically, it makes no sense. But you know what does make sense? What makes sense is John 17, where Jesus Christ invites all of us into the oneness of God that he and the Father share a oneness in relationship and in changing our nature to their divine nature. What my opponent has shown tonight in this diagram is that there is something that connects us. I actually can agree with this diagram. What's in the middle is the nature of God. That is what connects the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that nature is what we are called to be part of. It all makes sense. There's no need for all of this Greek philosophy and things that they added on to try and deal with these problems. Christ taught us the nature of the oneness that he and the Father shares. And he invites all of us to share in that oneness. And we, as Latter-day Saints, invite all of you to come and see and to learn about what the Lord has done to reveal these truths to the world and how they can bless your life and the lives of those closest to you. And with that, I yield my time. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for engaging in this debate. Uh, once again, it was a fantastic discussion, fantastic debate, and I definitely appreciate you guys for doing so. And so now we're going to transition to the Q&A, which would be a 30-minute Q&A. Uh, both of you will have one minute each to interact with the question at hand. Uh, the portion of debate where you guys are going at each other has expired, so no long, that is no longer uh, uh, asked of you to do. Um, and please do not interrupt the person as they are responding to the question at hand. Um, that said, we are going to engage with our first question here. And it is a super chat coming from uh, Swenson Bailey. Thank you for the support, Swenson. Uh, this question is for you, Andrew. One throne equals Trinity. What about Revelation chapter three, verse 21? I actually know Swenson. Hello there, Swenson. Um, let me look up. Uh, Revelations 3.21. So, I've overcome that I will grant to sit with me and my throne, even as I have also overcome and I'm set down on my father's throne. But there is one throne. He's sitting on his father's throne, and he and we are sitting on his throne, which is his father's throne. So, I'm confused how there's more than one throne right there because it says overcome to sit with me in my throne even as i have also overcome and sat down with my father on in his throne so it's still one throne i'm not sure what exactly yeah all right uh jacob uh, i was going to say to that it's very simple it's the the throne is a is a is a metaphor for the nature of god we can become co-participants with God in the divine nature and sit in his throne with him. It makes perfect sense on Latter-day Saint theology. All right. I actually agree with yeah. that. Theosis. All right. Uh, we have a question from Nick. Thank you, Nick, for the question. Can you explain 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 to 27, where Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father and Jesus says he will be in subjection to the father, not himself. Uh, I believe this question probably more directed to you, Andrew, um, if you want to engage with that. So I can't barely read it. It says where Jesus hands over the kingdom to the father and Jesus says he will be in subjection to the father, not himself. Uh, uh, I, you know, that's confusing the persons. We, we fully understand that Jesus came down as the Messiah, you know, he is the Messiah, so in a sense, he did come to us to um, you know fulfill stuff, which is what he did through his ministry, which was you know um, through the death and burial and resurrection. So you know Jesus is submitted to the Father in that regard because he is our uh, you know mediator and that stuff. So I I don't really see I I yeah so all right Jack. Uh, I was going to say, again, it makes makes perfect sense. Um, the, the scriptures attest to the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all divine beings, but they have different roles, and that the Father ultimately is uh, just like my Father will always be my Father, uh, even if I become a grown man and assume the nature of an adult human male. Um, my father will always be above me. So, and I, I will have a different role potentially than my father. So I, I don't have any problem with the, uh, with the son taking a, uh, a lesser place in the, uh, in the Godhead, uh, to the father. All right. And here's a question 
for Jacob. Thank you, Chris, for the question. Uh, read John chapter 10, verse 30. Obviously, Jesus is speaking about his substance. So on what hermeneutical argument do you try to overturn this grammatical fact? What basis? So when Jesus says he and the Father are one, any reference to the oneness between Jesus and the Father and their unitedness, again, that's the whole question of the debate. What is meant by this? And what I think I've shown in this debate is that what that oneness refers to is to John 17 describes it. It's a oneness of nature, purpose, unity. When you assume the nature of God, uh, you, your mind is his mind. Your will is his will. You become united. And this was in contrast to the concepts of divinity that existed at the time within polytheism that saw gods as disjointed and competing with one another. All right, Andrew. Uh, you know, of course, I agree with that saying, you know, Jesus, if you read the following passages in John 10, he is pretty much liken himself to the God of the Old Testament, which, you know, it, it, it's, uh, let me see where it says, um, now that I, when the Lord Yahweh say, now see that I, even I am he, and there's no God beside me, I kill and make alive, I wound and heal, there is no other who can deliver from my hand. You know, prior to that, Jesus is obviously saying they can't be snatched from my hand, and he keeps bringing this parallel to the God um, you know, Yahweh of the Old Testament, and he's saying, you know, the I and the Father are one. And so realistically, that would be, you know, the Jews believe in one deity, one God, Yahweh. And so since Jesus is Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh, they're not two Yahwehs. There is one Yahweh, two hypostases. So. All right. And um, so this question is for Jacob again. Um you tried to use John 17, 3 to prove that Jesus was not the true God. But in 1 John 5, 20, John the ap apostle calls Jesus the true God. Is John blaspheming then by your own reasoning? Um, let me check here real quick with 1 John. See what verse he's referring to here. 520. Uh, so Yeah, no, I, I, I believe that if you're talking about Jesus Christ as being, so if you're talking about the word God, again, it always comes down to this word God and the way that different people use it. And the thing is, my opponent uses it in different sense. I use it in different sense. And the gospel writers use it in different sense. And I would say that what the gospel writer is referring to is that he is the true, in part of the true Godhead. Okay. He doesn't have to say it explicitly because they didn't have that word. Okay. The he, he's the part of the Trinity or whatever. Right. And so my take on this, and I could be wrong, is that there seems to be a contradiction in scripture and there may be, because I actually hold open that possibility that scripture can have contradiction. But if it's not a contradiction, the way that it can be reconciled is if Jesus Christ is, um, the true God in another sense of the word God. And in this case, I would look and see, it's not unreasonable to say that, yes, Jesus Christ is truly God in the sense that he has the divine nature, he is truly divine, uh, and he is truly part of the Godhead and therefore part of what governs the, the universe. The, the question really is just one of what is the nature of that union? All right. 
Andrew? You know, it's, it's, it's quite simple. My opponent tries to make it more difficult, but it's like, um, it's quite simple. You can read it in, you know, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. I mean, the Jews, we all understand the Jews believed in one God, one deity, one God. And yet Jesus was being called that true God, that one God, that God. So, yeah. All right. And here's another question here. And it doesn't say who it's for, but we'll start with you, Andrew, here. Uh, what did Jesus mean by this statement? John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Andrew? You can, I, I've read several commentaries on this. You could take it, it's, you know, certain ways, but obviously it's talking about Christ's preexistence. Um, and we could look at the glory as being the Holy Spirit um, as well. But it's obviously saying that Jesus has a, a preexistence, which is... Um, him and his preexistence would be the word. And, you know, it's just like that before the world was, they were together. So. All right. Uh, Jacob. Yeah. Um, I think this goes right along with everything I've been saying the whole time is that it does refer to the preexistence of Jesus Christ. And in the preexistence, Jesus Christ was fully divine. And so what you're talking about is the glory that he had before this world was his full divinity that he had. And he basically is saying that he wants for them to share in that fullness of glory with him. And so he says that he wants them to be one in that glory and to become perfect in one and that the glory that God has given them, he or given to Christ, he wants to give to them. It's this divine nature. It is it is akin to the idea of theosis that my debate partner agrees with, but we just have differences of, of a little bit of how that exactly plays out. All right. And this will be the final question of the evening here. All right. This question is for you, Jacob. Trinitarians have always affirmed that God is three beings who are one substance, not three different beings. Isn't it true your definition differs greatly and you misrepresented us? Um, three beings? I've First of all, I've always heard that it's three, three persons in one being, because if you have three beings, then you have three beings and you have three gods and, and that are one substance. Again, the definition of the terms... What do you mean by substance? Again, it just gets into a confusing language here. But my understanding of to steal man as best I can is that the notion of the Trinity is that God is three persons in one being, substance, or essence. And my contention is that's incoherent because what makes you an individual person is the fact that you have your own essence. You have your own essential properties that make you you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be you. You wouldn't be an individual person. And that's what an essence is. An essence is the essential properties of something. And so if it wasn't essential, then it wouldn't be needed to make you who you are. All right. Uh, Andrew? Unfortunately, I am a little confused. I don't know if you maybe you probably meant three persons who are now one substance or something like that. Um, I guess you could say maybe you're referring to three hypostasis because at one point, you know, it can refer to substance. 
or being, or I don't, I'm not, I'm a little confused as well about what you meant by that. But I, I, I do agree that, um, it, you know, through when the LDS try to argue this stuff, they're not taking in the full, full, the full scope of what exactly is being said because it is one essence. But in that one essence, there's three persons. And, but then it, it's like when we go into the pre-existence of Jesus, you know, what was he? Was he a divine being or was he the word of God, the logos of God? Exactly what John says in John 1, 1. So, um, yeah. All right. All right, guys, that concludes the debate, um, Q&A portion of this debate. And I am so thankful for you guys. You guys did a fantastic job. I do appreciate you guys for coming on and, and giving a clear, thorough argument on your positions. And one thing I appreciate is when two people come on and they're passionate about what they believe, that makes for a very engaging debate. And I think the audience got a lot out of it. I know I did definitely, and I definitely believe the audience did too. And I pray that as you guys walk away from this debate, you guys are able to engage with the arguments that you guys made and see where you can sort of shape your argument better. Or if you feel that you misrepresented your opponent, you can perhaps go back to the drawing board and say, I want to properly represent my opponent. So if I do produce an argument, I'm actually representing what they really believe. So uh, hopefully you guys really take all those critiques into consideration. Uh, so with that said, do you guys have any close and remarks before I let you guys go. No, just a, just a thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Marlon. I really appreciate it. You've been a wonderful uh, host and, and moderator. And Andrew, you've been a, a great opponent. You brought up some great points and, and I enjoyed our interaction. And the same likewise. Thank you so much, Marlon um, and Jacob. It was really fun. All right, guys. You guys enjoy the rest of your day. And I look forward to perhaps doing this again sometime. You guys take care. God bless. Take care. God bless. All right, folks. Another great debate in the books, man. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed it. These are always fun debates, man. When we start talking about the divinity of Jesus, the substance, the Trinity, the essence of God, the nature of God, all of that ball of yarn, because it can be a ball of yarn. It could be quite confusing. Uh, but when it comes to these topics and debates, man, they're always fun because it forces you to really engage with what you're saying, man. They really force you to be consistent and it forces you to have a proper understanding of what uh, your opponent uh, is, is suggesting, right? Is arguing. So it's always fun. And I'm forever thankful when people come on and decide to debate such a critical and difficult topic because this is these, you know, you, you can have the simplistic debates of like atheism, if it gets Christianity, uh, something like that. But when you have theological debates and you begin to dive into theological areas such as the nature and essence of God and the persons of God and the being of God, those can be quite difficult and for, uh, quite uh, cumbersome, if you will, uh, to tackle. But uh, but when you get guys on that's willing to do that, it's always a fun debate. And so, as always, audience, I appreciate everything you guys are doing, the support that you guys give, the continued support. Um, and I look forward to the next one. Uh, the next debate will be uh, Michael Jones and Tyler Vila. Uh, they will be having a discussion concerning uh, divine hiddenness and that should be fun um i've i've haven't i know what divine hiddenness is but i haven't heard much uh debatable conversation of that topic right and so i am looking forward to this um as you know tyler vila was a former christian um he has denounced his christianity and i think he denounced it maybe almost a year ago now well publicly anyway 
um, he's denounced it publicly maybe about a year ago now. And so um, this is probably his first real true test of his transition uh, as far as the debate opponent that he's going to be dealing with. Uh, we know Michael Jones, Spire Philosophy is no, no, no softy, right? He's a very thorough, very smart, very engaging individual. Um, and so we'll definitely see if Tyler Vila is understanding uh, his gripe with divine hiddenness is something that's a real gripe or is it just emotional fluff, if you will. Um, but I'm sure both of those guys are going to have fun. And I know that we will have fun as well with that debate. Um, let me see if I have any questions here. Uh, any thoughts here? Oh, Chris, I want to address your question too, Chris, because it was a little confusing if I'm honest with you, man. Um, because I don't know if you meant to say three beings. Um, I'm assuming you didn't. I'm assuming you didn't because my understanding of the Trinitarian position is that it's three persons in one being. Um, and you've been on my show several times and I never heard you reference the Trinity three in three beings. At least I don't recall you doing that. Um, so um, my understanding, and I think most Trinitarians understanding is that it's three persons in one being. Um, so, you know, just, just let you know, Chris, you confused me as well. <laughs> So it's all good, though. It's all good, man. Um, but if that's really something you hold to, three beings, man, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, of why you believe in three beings. But um, nonetheless, uh, that's all I have to say. Um, if you guys have any more concerns or questions, hit me up, email. Uh, the email is in the description of this video. Uh, but that said, look forward to all the other shows and make sure that you are subscribing to The Gospel Truth. Don't forget, hit that notification bell. Subscribe and hit that notification bell before you leave this channel. If you're a newcomer to The Gospel Truth, make sure that you subscribe and hit that notification bell if this debate was a blessing to you. And don't forget, all The Gospel Truth is on other platforms as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Gospel Truth is on there as well. So go ahead, give a follow, subscribe over there on those channels as well. All right. Uh, that said, I'm going to get out of here. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. May God bless you and may God keep you. Take care.